Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans 6, 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? But you do, but you, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from dead will never, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the new, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will no, have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Panador. My name is Mark, if you're new, one of the pastors here. Uh, Last week, I began uh, my message with a short story revolving around the hilarious words of my eight-year-old son, Micah, and if you'll indulge me again, (laughs) he did it again, (laughs) and his... His mind is just too delightful not to share with all of you. I'd be hoarding all of these things to myself to not offer them to you. This time, actually, this past week, it happened on Monday, which was Martin Luther King Day. Incidentally, uh, my eight-year-old son's favorite holiday. I don't know why, but it it is his favorite holiday, so good for him. He's right in fashion, actually. Um, And he asked me, on Martin Luther King Day in the morning, sitting around the kitchen table eating breakfast. Dad, what would you do if you knew that the world was about to end? And I thought, ah, what a wonderful example of the home that this young boy is growing up in, (laughs) that he is thinking such philosophical thoughts here on this Monday morning around the breakfast table. What an opportunity, what a moment for his father to bestow on him some sage wisdom of the ages. And so I reached into the annals of history and verse and leaned heavily into an old Jewish proverb, and I told him, son, if the world were about to end, I would plant a tree. That's pretty deep right there, if you (laughs) think about it a little bit. Um, And he looked at me like I was nuts. (laughs) And he said, Dad, if the world was going to end, I would spend all my money and then do something illegal. (laughs) I thought, well, that's probably a more honest answer, actually, that reflects, I think, human nature a little bit more 
than dad's phony pomp about planting trees in the face of (laughs) raining fire. Um, But it goes back to what we talked about last week, actually, because last week, you'll recall if you were here, we were looking at the latter half of chapter 5 of this great letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul. And in that chapter, the Apostle Paul is speaking to this bent of humanity, this bent toward selfishness, this bent toward self-centeredness. He's speaking to the fact that we are all children of the Adam, children of Adam, that from the beginning, from the inception of humanity, when humanity was first formed, we have been going our own way. We've been trying to run our own lives. We've been off chasing the idea of life apart from God or playing as though we could function as our own gods, that we could be our own lords. And every one of us have followed in these footsteps of the Adam. We've walked in that way of the first man. We've walked according to that fallen humanity. And so our natures have become bent and distorted. We've twisted everything that God made good. And the purpose of chapter 5 of Romans, especially the latter half, the Apostle Paul means to demonstrate to us that God has met us right in that broken place, that God has stepped right into that place of broken and fallen humanity, that he hasn't sought to rescue us from on high, from a distance, but that his son actually entered into human history. His son actually stepped into that line of Adam, came into that line of Adam, became a real human being in the same way that you and I become human beings, born of a woman, born under the law. He stepped into that broken place, came all the way into the brokenness with us, and that in so doing forged for us a way out of that broken place. He didn't just stand above us and give us some example that we could never attain. He didn't call us to leap up into his goodness. No, he entered into our folly and lived up out of it for us. He came into the thicket, as it were, and cut a path out of it for us so that we can walk with him. He gave us a new way of being human a new way of living out this human life that God has given us. In fact, a way of living it out that participates in the divine life, a way that reconnects us back to our maker, such that we're sustained in God and held up in God. This is the purpose of the latter half of Romans 5. It's to show that God has met us in all of our brokenness. You know, because there's a very thin line, actually, between what we experience on a day-to-day basis, the seeming normalcy of everyday life, and rampant chaos and ruin. Things are actually much more bleak in our lives than we regularly recognize or we easily recognize. There's a very thin line between civilized society and utter chaos That's why we get glimpses of it, uh, say, in nations where there is not a robust legal system. In nations where there's not a robust legal system, there's often far more corruption, far more killing, far more crime that takes place. For all of our nation's 
legal troubles, for all the problems of the legal system here in our country, it does provide a great restraint against all of the bent and twisted nature that lies within us. It keeps things fairly orderly. We live in the most prosperous and most privileged nation in the history of the world. And because of that, we can be lulled to sleep, actually, about just how bleak the state of humanity truly is. In that sense, we can be thankful, really, for recent events. Recent events in our country have upset things a bit, exposed some things a bit. We've had some trying things happen recently in our country. The tensions politically have been heightened. And as they've been heightened, what happens? We start to be exposed, all of us, for all of the bitterness, the entrenched bitterness that we have within us toward other people that we live with on a daily basis. Who among us could claim that bitterness has not been exposed in your own heart the more that you get involved and see all of the political tension and chaos and turmoil in this country? Or likewise with the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement, of course, has exposed that there is an entrenched culture of sexual assault, a protected culture of sexual assault that is most rampant even among those people who claim to have the greatest concern for the least of these, the greatest concern for the weak among us, for the marginalized among us, people who are Hollywood elite and TV personalities and politicians and even pastors, people who are supposed to be most concerned for those who are voiceless. And in fact, they have contributed to and participated in a culture of sexual misconduct. And so we're being exposed, even in our great prosperous nation, even here where it's so easy to pretend that humanity is better than it is, the covers are being pulled back. We're seeing underneath what has always laid there, sometimes hidden from view, but always there. Our world is broken. We're broken. We've all followed in the steps of Adam followed in this broken humanity and twisted all that is good. Now, the latter half of Romans, as I said, is this announcement that God meets us in that broken place with extraordinarily good news that he has forged a way out for us, that that's who Christ is. Christ is the way out. Jesus Christ is the way out of this broken humanity. He is the way into a new way of being human. And because God has offered this Christ to the world, he has provided for us a resolution. He's provided for us a solution to this rampant problem of sin, this problem of self-centeredness, this problem of hurting one another and hurting ourselves. God has forgiven us for that in Christ. He's covered us in Christ such that we would not be called upon to pay the consequences for our sin, the cosmic consequences for our sin. He's made a way out of the death that we have sown into the world, the carnage and ruin that we have sown into the world. Okay, that's very good news, but perhaps you can anticipate this, a seeming problem emerges there. 
doesn't it? Because I mentioned that when restraint is not in place, the sin and brokenness that is in us spills out all the more. In nations where there is not a robust legal system, there's more corruption, more sin. What would happen if the cosmic restraint of God holding people to account for their folly were somehow removed? And isn't that what the gospel is proclaiming? That God is not keeping score. That God is not keeping a record of our wrongs. That he meets all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our folly with grace and forgiveness. So how then is the Christian gospel not simply a great announcement that leads to blood in the streets? How is it not just the ultimate removal of restraint that exposes all of the dark underbelly of humanity and brings ruin and destruction to the earth? You know, Louis XIV in the 17th century in France, he actually banned the Protestants from worshiping in France, shut down many of the Protestant churches for this very reason, because he believed this message of forgiveness and grace was so dangerous that it would unravel society. And who could blame him? That makes sense on its face, doesn't it? That if God were to simply give carte blanche, if he were simply to wipe the slate clean, if he were not going to have any cosmic consequences for our folly, then what possible incentive would we have for being any better than we are? This is the question that I want us to consider today. If God means to forgive our sin, then why not simply sin it up? Why not simply chase every self-centered end that we could? What possible incentive is there for some other way of living? Well, the Apostle Paul, the author of this great letter to the Romans, is so pleased that we have asked that question. (laughs) In fact, he knew that we would. (laughs) Because it's always the question that gets asked in the face of the gospel, isn't it? It's a question that we must ask. And the Apostle Paul anticipates that question and actually asks it for us. After making this announcement of God's grace and forgiveness in Romans chapter 5, he begins chapter 6 with these rhetorical words. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's the question, isn't it? That's our question. And Paul has just asked it squarely there for us. So what's the answer? What is there to deal with this problem of sin if God simply means to forgive it? God simply means to cover it. I want you to listen carefully to how the Apostle Paul begins to answer his own question He asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. A few years ago now, maybe four years back, my second oldest child, my second oldest daughter, Avery, was baptized in this church. And Later in that day, it was a Sunday, we were back at home, and I was standing in my kitchen, I think I was doing dishes, yes, I do the dishes, looking out, uh, my wife's not in here right now, so I can say that, Um, she might object, looking out the window into the backyard at our home, and I saw my daughter Avery sitting on the back step that goes up to our garage, looking forlorn, and so I went out to ask her why. And she said, I don't ever get to be baptized again. (laughs) And this was distressing for her because it had been such a profound moment. She had enjoyed that experience of receiving God's grace in that public way. And so I told her, Avery, the only reason you can't be baptized again is because you now live in a baptism. You are perpetually being baptized. This is why we don't rebaptize people. This is why we are only baptized once, because to baptize someone again would be like turning the ignition in a car that is already running. There's no purpose. You see, now, if baptism were simply the washing away of our sin then certainly we could make the case for rebaptism. If it were simply the washing away of our sin, then baptize me daily, please. I've got plenty more to offer. But here's the point. Baptism, the forgiveness of sins that is offered in baptism, cannot be abstracted from the person of Jesus. It is not as though in baptism we are simply receiving a benefit from Jesus. No, in baptism, we are receiving Jesus. In baptism, we are not having our sins merely washed away. In baptism, we are being dunked into Christ. In baptism, you are being buried into Christ, buried into Christ and raised with Christ. You are participating in the death and rebirth of Christ. You are being folded into Christ in the way flour is folded into a batter, such that the flour no longer has any independent identity or existence at all. It has lost itself into the batter. It has become one with the batter. When we are baptized, we are baptized into Christ. Two separate persons now being joined as one, a sinner and a Christ becoming united as one. Your sin, therefore, yes, is forgiven, but it is only forgiven because you are now in Christ, because he has swallowed up all of the consequence, all of the condemnation, all of the brokenness that is in you. You are now one with him. You have been 
replaced, your independent self has been replaced with a self that is now inseparably united and conjoined with Christ. How can a person who has been united to Christ in a manner like that not be transformed? You see, it's not the case that we simply receive independent benefits from Christ at different points along the storyline of our lives. No, in coming to faith, we receive all of Christ. We come into Christ. He comes into us. We are one with one another. And we receive all of the richness and benefit and glory of what it means to be God's only Son of what it means to be fashioned in the humanity of Jesus, to live in that new way of being human with him. So of course your sins are forgiven. Of course you're washed clean. You've been buried into Christ. You have all the favor and love of God on you. And what's more, all of the way and rhythm and life of Christ in you. Paul writes, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Baptism is the sign of God's rescue. If you want to know what Christian salvation looks like, if you want to know what it is, look at baptism. It's an immersive experience. We go down into the very death of Christ. We are raised up into the very life of Christ. We are transformed. We are reborn. We are made new, not in and of ourselves, but in Christ, fashioned in Christ, made into the likeness of Christ. God folds us together with his Son. That's what it means to be rescued by God. That's what Christian salvation is. It's to be folded into Christ, to lose yourself in Christ, to be made one with Christ, such that you are now a participant in his death and in his life. You no longer have independent biographies. You cannot tell the story of you and then tell the story of Christ. They are one and the same. Everything that has happened in your life is now a part of the biography of Jesus, your sin included. He has taken full responsibility for all of your sin, for all of your brokenness, for all of your misdeeds, for all of your missteps. It's all been swallowed up in him. And he has granted to you all of his humanity, all of his favor with God, all of his obedience. Martin Luther, of course, calls this the great exchange, that our sin is buried into Christ and his glory and divinity is buried into us. We're co-mingled together, God and man, at one, mysteriously, in this Christ 
Jesus. Paul writes in verse 11, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Hear this person of faith. Sin has no power over you anymore. Paul says here that this union with Christ has happened so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That is to say, sin has no power anymore in the face of Christ. Christ has undone the power of sin. That means sin has no power to condemn you. What a lovely and relieving reality that is. But it also has no power to enslave you. You see, sometimes as Christians, we only believe half the gospel. Half the gospel is much more famous than the full gospel, in fact. You'll hear people say, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for my sins. What a precious and beautiful truth that is, but it's only half the story. He didn't just die so that you wouldn't be condemned by sin. He died to gut the very power of sin. You see, sin either has power or it doesn't. If sin has power to condemn you, then sin has power to enslave you. But if sin has no power to condemn you, then it has no power to enslave you. This is what's so troubling and destructive about many of the ways we go about trying to sin less. Right? Because some of us believe half the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that you have saved me from the condemnation of my sin, that I no longer need to bear that guilt and shame for my misdeeds, my missteps. I'm so thankful that, you know what? By golly, I'm going to try and live a better life. And then what do we do? We go about setting up these experiments in our life where we threaten ourselves with condemnation in order to prevent ourselves from sinning more. We say, I don't want to experience the guilt and shame of sin anymore. Therefore, I won't walk into that folly. Therefore, I won't live out that self-centeredness. Therefore, I won't hurt that person, hurt myself. Therefore, I won't avoid love. We threaten ourselves with the very thing that God has announced has been removed, condemnation. We pretend as though sin has the power to condemn in some misguided effort to keep ourselves from being enslaved. Sin either has power or it doesn't. If we pretend that it can condemn us, then we infuse it with power to enslave us. We convince ourselves that it has power to enslave us. We talk ourselves into believing that it has power to enslave us. We've been set free, the prison doors have been thrown in, and we crawl back in and lay broken chains over our legs and over our arms in some misguided attempt to be pious or to be upright or to be holy. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you have been folded into this new way of being human. You've been made new in Christ such that sin has no power to condemn you and no power to enslave you. Sin has no power in your life. It cannot define you. It cannot redefine you. Martin Luther, who I mentioned a moment ago, says grace is opposed to sin and devours it. Grace is opposed to sin and devours it. This is flipping our question on its head, isn't it? If God's simply going to forgive sin, then why not use that grace as license to sin as much as we desire? Luther says actually the opposite happens. That as you receive the grace of Christ... As you receive Christ, it devours sin. It cuts sin off at the knees. It renders it powerless. Here in Chicago, unlike Seattle, I'm from Seattle. In Seattle, in the wintertime, everything is lush and bursting with color. There's green everywhere. It's rather obnoxious, if you ask me. Everything's always wet and moldy and gross. And here in Chicago, where it's dry and crisp and lovely, um, yeah, I like Chicago, uh, the winters are very different, and one of the ways they're different is that nothing grows here, right, in the wintertime. Everything dies. Everything is leafless and lifeless here in the winter. And when we get a warming spell, like we are this weekend, and all of the snow melts, You get to see just how lifeless everything is. The grass is this kind of burnt brown color. It's so clear, it's just stubble. There's nothing in it there for you whatsoever. And if you were to go on a walk in one of the neighborhood parks here later today, I would hazard a guess that not once as you walked down the sidewalk of the park would you even be tempted to walk out onto this burnt stubble grass that we have here in Chicago. It wouldn't even cross your mind. Why? Because the grass is dead. The grass is lifeless. It has nothing in it that would attract you to it. Contrary to spring, when it's full of life and bursting with color, everyone's out on the lawns here in Chicago. But in the winter, there's no reason to leave the sidewalk. And if by some happenstance of chance you were to daydream and wander off course and find yourself coming to your senses standing in the middle of a dead, burnt lawn of stubble, you would come to your senses and return to the sidewalk. Well, that was foolish of me to walk into this nonsense. There's nothing here for me. So it is with sin. God has rendered it powerless in our lives. There's nothing in it for us. And therefore, it has no power to entice us, no power to enslave us, and no power to condemn us. It's been put to death. It's been buried into Christ. It's been buried in his very body. There's no guilt or shame. Sin is like dead grass. In his uh, Romans commentary, the Swiss theologian Karl Barth, who I've been leaning on considerably as we've been making our way through Romans, he says this about this section of Romans. He says, Grace digs up sin by its roots, for it questions the validity of our present existence and status. 
It takes away our breath, ignores us as we are, and treats us as we are not, as new men. For those who have been known by God, sin becomes a withered, defeated, and finished thing. So what reason is there to walk away from sin if you have been forgiven all things? What reason is there to not go on sinning that grace may abound? Only because that is now not who you are. You have been made new in Christ. You have a new identity. Sin has no dominion in your life. You have been ushered into a new way of being human. Do not reject what you now are. Do not decreate yourself as though you could. Do not live in that now fiction of the old man. Live in the reality of the new person, the new humanity, the new way of being human. This is what Christ has done for us. It's who we are, set free, fully alive, new creations. Now, if you are not a Christian, if you are not someone who has ever put your faith or your hope or your confidence in Christ, Hear this, that this offer from God is for you also. This is the offer of God to the whole world. Jesus is sufficient to cover over all of the folly and brokenness in all of us. His life is wide enough to welcome every person into him. There's room in the vine for us all to be grafted in for us all to be connected to this new way of being human, for us all to experience the rescue and salvation of God. God is throwing open his arms and welcoming in his enemies and calling them friends and calling them children and naming them his son. This is for you no matter who you are and what you've done. Every body of sin can be brought to nothing and made new in Christ. This is free. It's yours by faith. He is for you. He's for us. Paul closes this section this way, starting in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. By faith, sin has no dominion over us. Sin has no power over us. It has no power, period. Because our master is not a lifeless law written in stone. Our master is a gracious and living Lord who offers us his life in his very flesh and blood. Let's receive him and pray. Father, we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for the life that is in him, for the rescue that is in him, for the new person 
that he can turn us into. We pray for this church, that there would be faith here, faith to receive this new humanity and walk in this new way. Lord, would you teach us who we are? Teach us to be who we are, to live according to what you have said of us, and to let go of every way that we have defined ourselves. All the folly that we have sought to define ourselves with, all the success that we have sought to define ourselves with, Lord, may we be defined by you. Help us in these things. Amen.